Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When you were a kid, you not only went to school where you did academics, art, and PE, but you probably also took extracurricular lessons in music or sports, and likely even taught yourself things like how to do magic tricks. At least, that's what I did. Now that you're an adult, can you think of the last new skill you learned? My guest today explains why there's a good chance that you'll struggle to answer that question, and how that's a tragedy you ought to do something about. His name is Tom Vanderbilt, and he's the author of several books, including his latest, Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. Tom and I discussed why his daughter's desire to learn chess inspired him to spend a year learning the game himself, as well as take on a project of learning other new skills. Tom explains the reasons adults give up on learning and why, while it's harder for adults to learn things than it is for children, it's still worth becoming a novice all over again. We then explore how to harness the beginner's mind using Tom's experiences and learning how to sing, surf, juggle, and draw as examples. And we end our conversation with Tom's takeaways from his experiment and how becoming a lifelong learner is really all about pushing through the mental barriers that hold us back from the many possibilities for growth that remain in adulthood. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash lifelong learning. Tom Vanderbilt, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. So you got a new book out called Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. And you do sort of a immersive journalism thing here, like George Plimpton or A.J. Jacobs, where you explore this idea of the science and research of what, what we know about learning and the beginner's mind. But you do that by learning new things yourself. And what kickstarted this book is you began teaching your daughter, your young daughter, to play chess. And that kickstarted this whole exploration of what it means to learn. So tell us about that moment and why that started, that, that made you think about, well, how do we learn? What, what's going on there? Sure. And I, I should say, you know, I, trying to teach my daughter chess is a bit of a stretch. I mean, I, I was really learning myself because the whole thing started because we were playing a game of checkers once on, on a vacation and there was a chessboard nearby in this library. And she looked over and saw this, this, you know, chessboard is kind of a cool looking thing to a kid, these, these great little, you know, statuesque pieces and said, you know, daddy, can we play that? And I was like, yeah, that would be great. Except, uh, I never really learned, which sounds ridiculous, but yeah, I'd probably learned the basic moves a long time ago, but they had never stuck. So I, you know, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to the internet. I'll try to figure this out. And I, I had, you know, had some success with that to some degree. I think, you know, one of the great things that's happened, especially in this last year, is that the power of the internet as a learning apparatus has really become clear. You can learn to do just about anything. So I picked, you know, I picked up sort of a basic knowledge of chess, but I, the thing with chess is, you know, <laughs> you hit a plateau quickly. It gets infinitely more complex all the way up to, you know, of course, grandmaster level. So I felt, I was in over my head. The strategy and tactics were too much. So then I thought, well, I'll hire a coach to teach my daughter properly. But then I thought, you know, why, why should I just pay for this guy to come over? And I'm, I'm sitting on the sidelines when I could be benefiting from this as well. So I just said from the beginning, can I sit in on these lessons? And I thought, you know, here was a funny thing. We had this little nice little sample size group of two people. She was four at the time. I was in my 40s. How is that going to work out? And so I found the whole experience so striking to me that I really, and what really drove it home was that, you know, hey, I'm learning this new thing. What what actually is the last new skill I had learned? And where, where has this been during my 20s, 30s, 40s? And then, you know, set out with this, this goal of trying to learn all these things that I had long wanted to learn. And I should just, I'll, I'll, con, I'll conclude this long answer by saying, 
when I say learn, I, I should say, you know, I, I haven't reached the finished stage of any of these things. I'm in the process of learning. But so, yeah, that, that's what kicked it off. One of the most incisive moments and the thing that convicted me when I was reading your book at the very beginning, you're talking about, so your daughter really got into chess and she started going to these chess tournaments. My son's done one of those. And it's if you're a parent, you take your kid to this thing and it's a lot of waiting around. Like they play chess and then you got to wait while they play and that game could last however long. And then they got to play another game. And something you observed is that all the parents were there and they're just like on their smartphones. They were just, you know, twiddling around on Twitter, reading a book. And you thought, why are all these parents just like, why, what, what happened? Like, why are these parents just uh, letting their kids learn and take part in this new skill? And we're just sitting here out stagnant. Why did that? I think that moment too also existentially shook you up. Like what, what was it about that? And, and why do you think as adults, we give up on learning new things? Yeah, it's a great point. And I, you know, I felt, I, I guess I felt hypocritical. I, I, you know, here I was day in and day out telling this, you know, telling my daughter, you know, it's so important to learn. You ha- I want you to learn all these things. I don't want you to think that you can't do anything. And, you know, in most cases, a parent is put in this position of authority. I'm going to teach you how to ride a bike, how to tie your shoe. If there's something I don't know, well, we're just going to stay away from that. So, you know, I, it wasn't a hypocritical. I'm, I'm telling her every day how important learning is, but what could I point to in my own life that was the last new skill that I learned? And I, of course, as a journalist, I, I absorb a lot of information. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, learning all the time, but I, I thought, you know, skills were something that I had given up on and out of basically, you know, sort of, you know, charitably, I could say lack of time, but also cowardice is there also, you know, I, if I didn't learn how to do this when I was young, why would I want to plunge into this when I'm 40 or 50, something like surfing, you know, which is not so kind to the aging body, but, you know, I, I just wanted to like bring home this lesson I was imparting to her to myself. And as to the question of why we give up, yeah, I guess I've sort of answered that a little bit already, but we give ourselves lots of excuses. I mean, we, adult life does intervene. We have jobs, we have often have children, we have a lot of responsibilities that do take up time. But, you know, if you sort of make it made a time diary of your week, I'm not going to implicate anyone here, but, you know, it probably includes a lot of, let's just say, consumption of Netflix shows and the like. I mean, I think in anyone's schedule, there is this time for learning. We often throw that out there. Well, I'm just too busy to learn something like chess. I mean, if you watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, like a lot of America did, you could have basically picked up the game in the time you spent watching that. So just, so I think we give ourselves a lot of reasons not to, and often are afraid to embrace all those reasons why it would be actually a great thing for us. And I also think too, and you make this point too, there's some sort of like cultural conditioning that happens at some point. It's sort of very subtle that, and it's this, it's that, well, learning's for kids. Like once you're an adult, like you're done, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and of course, you know, children's whole lives are set up for learning and, and they have, you know, they have all this time, immense amounts of time to do nothing but learn. Wouldn't that be great? And then the supportive cast around them that is applauding their every move and signing them for these lessons and thinking they're just the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, and uh, ad- adults don't really get that so much. When I sort of brought up this uh, project to my wife, you know, I had kind of a sense of, let's say, polite condescension, like, yeah, you learn to sing, that would be great. Just just don't do it too much around us, okay? But I just think we tend to get in that trap of thinking that only children can learn, children are learning machines. And I should just say that, you know, a lot of the learning that even kids do starts to get short-circuited after a little while. And I, I bring this up with things like drawing or singing. Every kid draws and sings up to a certain point, And then they're basically 
encouraged not to, or it sort of falls out of the curriculum. And, you know, that's only for art kids or that's only for music kids. And, uh, you know, by the time you're in college, as some studies have shown, you know, your ability to sing has basically fallen off to where you were, you know, you're, you're worse than when you were a kid. All right. We'll, we'll talk about like what's going on there. So when you decided, okay, I'm going to learn stuff. I want to explore this idea of, of a beginner's mind, what it means to learn, what goes on when we learn. You decide, okay, I'm going to learn some skills. How did you decide which ones you take up? Like what were the criteria used for the skills that you would learn? I want them to be, number one, things I really wanted to do. I did want to just sort of pick things that might sound good or, or be noble pursuits. I mean, I would love to learn Mandarin or another language, but that would just I felt like that would sort of dominate the book. And I wasn't actually a true beginner in, in learning a language. So dabbled in Spanish all my life. So so there's that. And secondly, want to do things that I could do within reach of my home. And this is sort of before COVID, of course, so I was taking in-person lessons. So all the things were, were things I, I could do without going somewhere you know, across the world. Someone suggested learning to make gelato at, at Gelato University in Italy, which I would love to have a master's degree in gelato making, but, you know, I, so, and then the third thing was I wanted to sort of cover a broad spectrum, almost like a, a university curriculum of, of a little bit of arts, a little bit of humanities, uh, kind of a physical aspect with, with surfing and just be broad. And the reason I did five of these things, which soon branched into six or seven and, and continues is, is that, you know, I was, I was worried about being bored basically, or not liking something that I had decided was going to be my passion. I mean, I, I love these books that are out there, you know, uh, Word Freak, Stefan Fatsis, um, Moonwalking with Einstein, Maria Konnikova's book about poker in which she becomes, you know, basically a poker champion. I, I mean, those are amazing books, amazing pursuits, but I didn't think I was going to have the time or the knack to become great in any of these things. So I want, you know, as I, as I describe it, I wanted sort of a distributed competence in all these things that had long interested me, sort of like a a Swiss army knife I could I could pull out of my pocket and just, you know, pull out that little blade. Was I, you know, amazing at any of these things? No, but could I get through something or or talk to someone who was great in that thing? Yeah. So that was that was sort of the criteria. So as we said, as you you describe you learning these new skills. You also explore the research. You talk to neuroscientists and cognitive experts about what goes on when we learn. So let's start off with this. Like, what uh, what do we know about the beginner's mind? Like, what does it look like? How does it differ from an expert or even just a, a competent mind? Yeah, but beginner's mind. I mean, just in case anyone isn't familiar with this, is a concept from from Zen Buddhism, which is is not really scientific. It's just sort of an ethos to try to approach the world as a child, as a novice, and the word novice means beginner monk, I should point out. But And this is something that gets hard when you reach your fifth decade of life and have a ton of what's called what's called crystallized knowledge, uh, you know, sort of wisdom and memories. And, you know, it, it, gets, it gets hard to disregard that stuff and approach the world in a fresh way. I mean, one great example I mentioned in the book is this thing called the candle problem, which psychologists do, which they give people a match, a box of tacks and a candle. And the instruction is to, you know, put this, attach this candle to the wall. And it turns out that young children actually do better than older children and even adults in this experiment because they're not hung up on these objects as the things they are in and of themselves, this functional fixedness, it's called. Children just look at these things and think, oh, what, what could I do with that? What could I do with that? And as an adult, you've, you you know what these things are. Oh, this goes for that. So it just gets harder to have that sort of freshness. And 
you know, neurologically, I'm not really sure how, what that looks like. And I, I'm not sure it's been actually that well studied, but children really are, are all about beginner's mind. I mean, that, that's just their whole process. And they have these synapses that are, the number of synapses they have are, are just vast compared to adults. Because we've spent our whole life pruning those connections and, and trying to filter out what is it important. I mean, because it's, it's an efficiency thing. We, we can't go around like children all the time, gazing in wonder at every little moment of our lives and, and, and wondering what, what's behind that because we'll go crazy. You know, we, so I mean, that, that, and that's just one of the things that, you know, neurologically, if you look at expert performers, they sort of begin to describe this, you know, their brain is sort of winnowed in a way. There's been some work on, on chess grandmasters and, you know, rather than their brain expanding, it sort of gets smaller. And I'm sort of butchering the neuroscience here, but the, the point is that they learn to do more with less. They've made automatic a good percentage of that behavior, whereas children are just soaking it all in and nothing's automatic for kids except a few skills like walking. So kids have like more fluid intelligence as opposed to crystal. That, that makes it learning easier in a lot of cases. Yeah, yes, for, in some ways. I mean, for the game, just to take the game of chess, for example, my daughter is really great at things like puzzles, at spotting opportunities on the board in a given moment. She's great at Blitz chess, which is five-minute games per side, or even bullet chess, which is one-minute games per side. I, at least in the beginning, was it was sort of better at that at that wisdom side, that crystallized side. I had this, you know, decades and decades of, of just experience at playing games, which is sort of sort of a meta knowledge of, of strategy and how to play and how to be patient and how to do things like consider, for example, what why did my opponent just make that move they just made? My daughter would just sort of play her games from her own point of view with her own end game in mind and, and kind of disregard what the other person was doing. Not always, but but sometimes. And this was why she would lose and her coach would yell at her. But, you know, adults just might have a little bit more of that, you know, kind of penchant for strategy, let's call it. And then this idea that as you get older, learning gets harder because your crystallized intelligence goes up and your fluid intelligence goes down. You saw this in your family. I guess you got your dad I think it was your dad playing yeah, games as exactly. well. And it would be like, uh, your daughter was the best, you were the next best, and then your dad wouldn't be, he'd be like last, yeah. basically. And this is just, it's just age. And it, it, I wish it could be different. And of course, my, my dad wasn't playing chess all his life. So this is something to point out. If he if he had been, the, the decline is less pronounced. It, it, the one thing that's to point out here is that it does get harder to be a novice as you get older, it takes longer to learn that new thing. So it, he had the greatest challenge. I had the next greatest challenge. My daughter had the, the smallest challenge, uh, you know, which is not to say it's all about just that sort of cognitive ability. It's there's motivation. There's the sheer amount of practice. I mean, my daughter did start getting a lot better than me, but she was also putting a lot more time into it and and doing things like analyzer games. So I don't want to say it's all just some inherent brain thing. If, if my dad started playing 10 hours a day and studying and he would he would make a lot more progress but if you just start everyone from that same clean slate more or less yeah that that's going to happen i mean there there is that age progression so that that's just something that does not say you can't make great progress it's just you're going to have to going to have to work a little harder right so i think that's a big point is that it's going to be harder but you know learning new things is not impossible even as you get older and you highlight people in their 70s 80s who are still learning new things 
Yeah, that, that plasticity, which is the key thing here, the, the ability of the brain to reshape itself as, as you pick up this new knowledge. And it happens really quickly. I was sort of amazed by this. I mean, they did these juggling studies where they try to teach people to juggle three balls, which is sort of the baseline for juggling. And within a week, sometimes even, even less, they had seen substantial evidence of, of plasticity. And that is much less dependent on age. You, you, that falls off a lot less. So that, that ability to learn is still there. It's, again, it's just going to be harder for, for a few reasons that involve, you know, what I was talking about before, just as adults, we've, we've absorbed a lot of things. I use the analogy of, of, you know, my brain is like a teeming hard drive, like you, you're, the thing that your parents have that they've had for 20 years, and you have, you have ancient files on there. The hard drive is slow. You go to look for some memory, and it, it's making that clacking sound, and, and it's taking forever. And Whereas my daughter was like, you know, a, a flash drive. She could just pluck that out because she, does, she hasn't met thousands of people I have. She, can, she, can, she doesn't forget names or faces. And so adults have that additional challenge. I think another problem you talk about in the book that holds adults back from learning is that as you become an adult, you become very instrumental in your approach to life. It's like, well, I'm only going to do something if it's useful. And a lot of the skills that you learned, people are like, well, that's not like, why, why learn how to sing? Like, how's that going to help me with my job? How's that going to help me? Yeah, basically, how would it help me with my job? What's your response? To, like, why, why learn? What is the benefit of learning a skill that might not have any uh, economic utility? Yeah, very good question. I, I think we've already talked about you know a lot of the cognitive benefits, but there it goes way beyond that. I mean, just in, into sort of the social, the emotional. Just to take one example, singing. I mean, just just singing is an immediate uplift. Even if you're singing a blues song, it just makes you feel better, and it, you know it sort of taps into all sorts of mechanisms. The vagus nerve, which is associated with countering depression, helps you sort of work on your breathing. And breathing, of course, has been sort of in the the news and literature a lot lately. And, and, you know, that, that sort of brings about a stress reduction, all these positive benefits. When I I shifted to singing with people, this is where, this was sort of the, the special sauce here where it really began to feel good because you were, you were working with this group of like-minded people, not, not that they all became my close friends, but you you really had to sort of do this thing in, in this social group. And I, sort of note that the choir was about 35 to 50 people ranging. And, and that coincidentally or not is, is sort of the, the size that's been identified by anthropologists as these original kind of hunter gatherer groups. So not to get too deep in the woods with that, but I, but I think, you know, just this kind of core group of, of humans in this kind of ideal sized cluster, literally working in, in harmony, just brings out such a positive feeling and our, our rehearsals were on Monday night and I, I would leave feeling like it, it was the, the weekend, you know, after, after I had started the week, you know, sort of uh, Monday. So in terms of job, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a bit, okay, I have to admit, you know, I'm writing a book about learning these things. So there actually is a benefit to my job about learning skills, but most people, you know, they're not, their job is not going to be improved by learning to surf on the surface. But I quote this study that, that David Epstein in his great book, Range, talks about, which notes Nobel Prize scientists are 22 more times likely, according to this study, to have participated in some kind of amateur pursuit like music, performing arts, even being a magician, than the non-Nobel Prize winning scientists, which is not to say there's a one-on-one correlation with learning ballroom dancing and you know getting some amazing breakthrough in physics, but some, something about you know maybe that willingness to to branch out 
to be open to these new experiences, to talk to people you might not be talking to in your normal job, get out of that, that sort of silo. Maybe that, you know, sparked some creativity, some that they were able to bring back into their job. And, you know, a lot of people think of, well, these are things you do if you don't like your job or to bring joy to your life because you're sort of weighed down by your job. And that, that might be true, but I think it's even more true as, as Winston Churchill pointed out in this, who was, who by the way, a great amateur painter, wrote this sort of great small book on painting, said, you know, if it, the people that love their job, they, they need this stuff even more because the, there's just that tendency to never let go of your job. How are you ever going to step outside of your job if you're so passionate about it? And I, and I do love my job, yet I also found such benefit from from doing all these things. And it just continues to pay dividends in, in to, to my life, let's say. Uh, Jesse Itzler, who's written uh, you know about living with monks and living with a seal and all these other things, uh, you know, he has this phrase, life resume. And I, I, I really sort of like that idea as as the living in the kind of culture we do, which is a very sort of LinkedIn productivity driven society. What, you know, how is this going to be good for your job? Just, just the idea that there's more to your job that what, what does your life resume look like? So I sort of borrowed the phrase from him. Right. Yeah. Learning. He's, he's talking, it's self-expansive. It just feels good. Like that, that's, that's, that's fine. That can just be good enough itself. Yeah. Just, just even to, to talk to yourself and have this sense of self-expansion, you know, suddenly, Hey, I'm, I'm a surfer, I'm a singer, I'm a drawer. I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an, an artist, but you know, I have something of that skill. I, I am moving toward getting better at that. It's just, yeah, suddenly I'm more sort of interesting to myself, at least. I, I don't, <laughs> like I said, my, my wife isn't clamoring, you know, for example, to hear me, to me sing all the time, but it just, to know that there's more to yourself than you thought there was, you know, a year ago or last week. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So let's dig into these skills a little bit more. So you've been talking about singing. Uh, you took voice lessons. Uh, you joined a choir. And I've, I've also, I've thought about when I was read this, when I read your book before that, I was like, I'd like to take singing lessons because singing is something that humans have done for a long time. And, you know, when we were kids, we sang all the time. We don't, you don't think singing would be hard. I mean, I think I remember I watched Buddy, or I watched Elf this Christmas. And I remember that famous live, Buddy the Elf said, singing is just like talking except louder and longer and you have to move your voice up and down. <laughs> but nonetheless, like singing is really hard. Like why, is, what makes singing so hard? Like why are people bad at it? Right. And Or think they're bad yeah, at I mean, it. Sometimes they actually are bad at it and and. You know, but the reason they're bad at it is not because they're they're tone deaf in ninety nine percent of cases, let's say, or that they just don't have a good voice. It's that they haven't been practicing it. And you know, one of the things I really try to drill home with a lot of these things I was working on. I mean, obviously, surfing is a motor skill, but so is singing. So is drawing. I mean, people aren't generally you know born to sing, or you know, you don't you don't hear someone say, oh, you know, he's just he has a god given talent for for welding or or baking. And, and, and it's not to denigrate those, those are great things, but I'm just saying we, we somehow with these other pursuits, we get it in our head that it's just something that people have an innate talent. Whereas, you know, a lot of work, uh, you know, sort of has to go into that. Okay. So what did you see as you were learning how to sing? Like what was holding you back? Yeah. I mean, number one, just that, that feeling that you're, you're not good, that sort of lack of mastery. And, you know, it doesn't, and number two is that we're out of practice. I mean, as, in, as individuals and as a society, I, I sort of talk a little bit in the book about how 
public singing as as a forum for you know society and entertainment has has been declining and, and by all sorts of measures we just don't sing in, in group settings the way we used to i mean the third thing too is that singing is a very emotionally resonant act that that, that your, your throat has you know there's just a lot of sort of nerve brain connection going on there and to sort of open yourself up in that way is a very, very vulnerable proposition and it's it's no surprise great study i saw was was trying to uh, a group of university researchers were trying to study embarrassment like what it means to be embarrassed and i thought well how do you how do you create embarrassment they had people sing in, to the researchers you know that just it's just hard you, you know you, probably even people that are good at it excellent performers still have that moment of, you know, I have to get up and do this in front of someone to just quell whatever, you know, a little bit of stage fright there. But I would just like to put the message out there that you can sing, you know, people can make a lot of progress. I have an app on my phone called Pitch Perfect, which you can sing into and do scales, and it will give you a one through a hundred quantitative rating on, on how well you were hitting those notes. And I was starting in the 60s, which is, you know, I was feeling pretty bad about that, but I just kept hammering away at it and doing some of these, you know, practices. And I can do, you know, 100 now, 100%. So, and I, I was, I, I have no musical background except for singing in the shower and, and the car, like we all do. But so just to put out, you know, you, you can do it. Uh, and a thing that you, you talked about too in the book I thought was interesting was that you took voice lessons, but then you also joined a choir. And that learning in a group, like you were basically learning in a group, kind of in a way supercharged your learning. Like what was different about singing with just one-on-one with a coach compared to singing with a, a larger choir, like in learning in a group? Right. I mean, and, and they both definitely have their, their place, you know, singing with a, a coach. And I had a great coach who, you know, you, you Number one, it just it feels good. You feel like you have this this hour that someone's just there listening to you, and and like I said, sort of you're doing these breathing exercises, and it's just sort of a very restorative kind of thing. So I would recommend it just on that front. But you're really getting that one-on-one feedback. You know, my coach was was looking at my mouth and my my throat and my tongue as I was singing, and really, you know, I felt like I was at the dentist sometimes because you know. But this is what's sort of required because, you know, there, there's a whole infrastructure in, in your body going on there that has to be activated the right way to, to really get the best result for what you're doing. But, you know, sort of, so we were doing just a lot of drills, drilling, drilling, drilling. And then to think about, you know, if you're trying to learn how to play soccer, I think if, if you do a lot of one-on-one drilling with a coach, well, that's great. You can get pretty good at it, but then the time comes when you have to play in a game. You have to see what if you can apply what you've learned into a very dynamic changing situation in which people are you know also you know trying to defeat you so that that's kind of what i thought with choir you know i, I want to get out and try to put the skill into the real world and of course no one's trying to defeat you in, in choir maybe, maybe the the alto are a little loud sometimes for basses but that, sorry that's just a choir joke but um but no you know like it, it was just very important and, and productive to be, I found among a range of people, people that were much better than me. And then after I was there a little while, people that were also coming in new, suddenly I had a little bit of experience, a little bit of knowledge I could try to teach them. And, and that's, you know, one of the things that also struck home here is that teaching is, is just one of the greatest learning tools. This is kind of a thing that people know about, but I hadn't really experienced it that much personally. So yeah, it just seemed like I was getting 
there's something about just going through that in a group process, learning from other people as it's happening. It just, yeah, like you said, it supercharged it and also just felt, I felt a certain greater sense of responsibility. If it was just me and my teacher, I could slack off a little bit because, well, it's just, she, she might yell at me that I didn't do my scales. But if I don't learn this part, well, the whole choir is going to be let down. So that, that's where it's, the group setting can can really help kind of bring home that sense of responsibility a little bit. So you're able to, like, as you said, learning, We most most of our learning is done observationally. That's where we get most of our learning. Like, I mean, yeah, you can read a how-to book with like steps. And I think there's, they've done studies on that. I think it was with the juggling, right? So like mm-hmm. they t- took some people and they said, oh, here here's some step-by-steps on how to juggle. And they couldn't do it. And they took another group and they just said, just watch this person juggle. And they were able to figure out. So learning in a group allows you to get that observational benefit. Also, you get feedback in real time because you're able to see, okay, I'm doing this wrong or I'm out of pitch to that guy next to me. And so you can correct on the fly. So you get observation and feedback uh, right away when you're learning in a group. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, as anyone who's bought a piece of furniture, let's say from Ikea or some kind of electronic device that has this insane manual. You know, no one wants to read through the manual. I'm not even sure why they're written at this point. People nowadays, they go to YouTube and watch someone who's bought that same thing. They unpack it. They've figured out a way to put it together. So they share that knowledge. And that's such a more, much more effective way. Humans are mimicking creatures. Uh, You know, we share that with, it's, you know, primates, uh, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And it's very powerful to learn. And often in choir, like, like you said, I was, I was basically just trying to echo what my, you know, the leader of the bass section was doing, or just to look at Charlie, who's the, the choir leader and sort of really see what she was doing. And, and I, I almost felt like sometimes we were looking at each other in the mirror, she would kind of come, come right up to me and like, okay, now do what I'm doing. And that also makes it a lot easier in a sense, because, and this is another important thing to point out about skill learning is often overthinking basically gets in the way of being able to learn something. And when it, when it get, just got reduced to that level of, Tom, you know, can you do, just sing this the way I'm singing it right now, just make this basic sound. That was much more effective than, you know, tr- I could get out of my head and, and just stop thinking about it and just basically follow the simple instruction. Because, you know, going back to why we feel bad about singing, another thing that happens is that you know, when we're learning, when it hasn't become automatic yet, like I said, we try to tend to overthink it. So I, I was having trouble with high notes, for example. I've, you know, sort of a lower voice, and but these were these were notes that I could use in speech. These these weren't notes that were in, physically impossible for me. But as as the note would be coming up in a song, I would start to freak out. My throat would clench. I would my whole body would tense up. I would. My teacher told me I was literally reaching my head upward to try to hit this quote-unquote high note, but all that stuff was just throwing off my body to to produce this note. So, you know, if my teacher gave me great instruction, which was as that high note approaches, bend your knees down and sort of do this little dip down as, as just sort of a little trick to forget what you're trying to do and just just sing the note, worry about bending your knees, kind of very counterintuitive sort of notion, like, but it actually, it actually worked amazingly well. All right. So takeaways there, don't overthink things. And then if you're learning a new skill, consider joining a group or trying to do it with someone else uh, as well. That can help a lot. Another skill you learned was surfing. You've mentioned that before. And surfing is one of those skills I think you talk about in the book. Surfers have this sort of idea that if you don't 
pick up surfing before you're 14, basically, you're never going to be a surfer. So okay, what, that was from uh, William Finnegan's book, Barbarian Days, but, but, right. but go on. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what was it like uh, learning how to surf as an adult and like what insights about learning new skills did you get from that experience? One nice thing is that the message has gotten out to some extent already on this. And there are a lot of adults out there trying to learn to surf, at least at, at Rockaway Beach in New York City, uh, which is not to say, you know, it's the same everywhere, but I was heartened by that. I mean, if you go, obviously, if you go in, like, in the summer, for example, there are a lot of kids' camps, and it tends to be sort of dominated by children learning. But the rest of the year, there were always adults out there, some of whom were not always so good. So you didn't feel, maybe that's because of Rockaway is not, and I was going on days when the waves weren't so huge. So it sort of weeds out some of the experts anyway. So if anyone's you know feeling that intimidation, I would just say it. You know, don't believe the hype on, on that surfing is so exclusionary. There are places you can go where there's, you know, a lot of people just like you. But one of the challenges here, though, is that I talk in the book about kids learning to walk, infants learning to walk, and how they can take up to 70 falls per hour. It's, it's been documented by studies at, at NYU, and usually without much harm. I mean, infants are, are built to fail as a means to learn. Adults don't have that same luxury. So I have taken my fair share of beatings out there. And, you know, someone with questionable freelance health insurance, this was always a little bit scary to me. But, you know, one, the worst case was one day I, you know, sort of got tipped up upside down and had my head planted into the the ocean floor and had some compression on my spine uh, that which was, you know, very concerning and, and could have led to a much worse result. So that, I mean, that, that, that sort of, Obviously, chess or singing in this regard is is a safer uh, path. But again, yeah, the benefits I've gotten from surfing were, to my mind, worth those those risks. Which, yeah, unfortunately, are greater the older you get. Your body's just not as engineered to handle failure as as the young learner. And one idea about learning you explored with your surfing was this idea of the the U shape, right? So, like when you're a beginner, you often make progress really fast. Mm-hmm. And then you reach a point where you actually start getting worse. And that's when a lot of times people give up. And then, but if you keep going through that, you start getting better again. Like what's going on? Like, why is it that you reach a point with your learning as a beginner that you start getting worse? What's, do we know what's happening there? Yeah. I mean, there could be a couple things going on. I mean, number one is that, you know, with surfing, for example, you, you begin to want to gun bigger tasks and you want to, you know, in the beginning, you, the instructor is basically pushing you into waves and all you have to do is stand up on the board, which is not that easy. And, and But once you do that, it, it feels amazing. After he's pushed you 20 or 30 times and, and you're starting to get good at it, then you're thinking, okay, I should probably try to catch my own wave. This is about 10 times more difficult than simply popping up, maybe even more. You know, so right away, you thought you were doing great. Now you're taking on this bigger challenge. So you have this sense that you've sort of gone backwards a little bit there and, and it, and it continues. Then the next thing would be, okay, not just catching my own wave, but actually paddling to where there's going to be a good wave. That's another skill that takes time to develop and, and cultivate. And I'm still not that great at admittedly, but you know, that, but that's 10 times harder even still. So, uh, the idea that, you know, we have to push past those moments when we're going to be plateauing. I mean, another thing that happens too is that 
And we, and we do go backwards just even with the same task. The studies from juggling and my own experience show, for example, that learning three ball juggling, people will hit 50 or 60 cycles in a row and think they've got it nailed. Suddenly they'll, they'll pick it up the next day and they can't get five or six. And there's just the, the researchers called a bug, like as in a computer. And who knows what's actually going on? I mean, it could be the, the brain is still sort of consolidating the information and you just actually need to step away from it a little bit and then come back and have that retrieval where you're pulling it back. Yeah, it's, it's a, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing as the cliche goes. And, and one thing that also happens is that the beginner, there's studies with, with kids, for example, with grammar, they're, they're speaking great at like age four or five. Say like, uh, I ate that hot dog yesterday. Then, then they learn, they start to actually learn the rules of grammar and they think they've got it down and they'll try to over apply what they've learned and thinking, oh, every, every verb, every past verb needs to end in ed. So say, you know, I ate that hot dog yesterday or something like that. And they, they thought they were great. Suddenly they've, they've taken on more than they can choose, so to speak. And, and it kind of bites them. So, you know, if you suddenly think this happened to me surfing, I, first time outside of the Rockaways, I was in Portugal. I tried to go on a new break. I was very excited. I, I told the guys, yeah, I, I just need a little bit of instruction. I already know how to surf. And it was a completely different break, different waves. I was on a different board. And I, I sucked, to put it, to put it bluntly. I, I could not catch a wave. And they, they basically <laughs> had to resort to pushing me into these waves. So I was actually back to square one, which is very humiliating. All right. So whenever you're a beginner, like oftentimes I feel like you can rely a lot on like procedural information, like do this, do this, do this. But then you reach a point, well, that gets you, that can get you so far. And you think, well, I'm, I'm awesome now. And then you get thrown into situations where the procedures no longer work. I mean, I experienced this with foreign language. Like I took an immersive foreign language class for Spanish and I, in six weeks I thought, man, I know Spanish. And then I get <laughs> dropped in Mexico and I had to have like my first like real conversation and I had no clue what was going on. Like I didn't, it sounded like they were speaking Russian basically. Yeah. And then I had to learn again on the, okay, well, that's not going to work. The, the procedures I learned is not going to, I had to learn this new school, how to speak Spanish on the fly. Yeah. And that's a great point, you know, about how much of learning is just sheer experimentation that, you know, going back to those infants that they were studying at NYU Infants are just, we don't give drills to teach children how to walk. We just let them roam about in a room for an hour and fall 30, 40, 70 times an hour. And then, you know, we don't really give them feedback about why they fell either. We just sort of let them do it and work it out on themselves. So to go back to your point, experimentation, you just have to get out there and have some halting conversations with native Spanish speakers who are going to, you know, be polite or maybe, you know, <laughs> laugh at you, but uh, you can drill all you want, but at some point, yeah, you just have to get out in the real world and it's going to feel different. So uh, one final skill I want to talk about, because this, I've wanted to do this too, is take, uh, take up drawing, learn how to draw. Mm-hmm. Because you point, you point out that most people, like when they're kids, they draw all the time and kids are actually for, for a while, you know, the drawings aren't, they're not great, but they can convey things pretty well. But then we reach a point where we no longer progress. And you made this point that like we all still draw like we're nine year nine year olds. And I find that true. Like for me, it's like twelve. Like I still draw the same little face that I could at twelve years old, and it hasn't gotten any better. So what's going on there? What? Why did you take on drawing? And like, why do people find drawing so hard to do? Yeah, I, I guess I've always just 
I, I wanted to get back, as you say, to that that initial pleasure I seem to take out of it as a child. Not to say that it would be the same kind of pleasure, but you know, I was, I was wondering why did why did I lose that? Where, where did it go? And could I get it back? And you know, I, I was interested in, in art. I didn't think I was go- didn't really set out to become an, an artist or anything, or or, re- or even really to be quote unquote creative. I, I just wanted to. I just wanted to try this manual sort of motor skill of being a, a draftsman. So, and of course, and I should say that, you know, there's a lot of cool stuff you can buy. And that this is one of the pleasures of being a beginner, I think, is that whatever you're plunging into is just plunging into that whole world of stuff you can, you just just the, the books to read, the stuff to buy, the, the you know, and, and someone who works at a computer all day, just typing, pushing electrons around, it just owning these these pencils and a kneaded eraser and, and 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 sharpening a pencil with a razor blade the way artists do was to me just very sort of intoxicating you know but just to describe really quickly a episode i had that i described in the book that that was really to me pretty life-changing and it was this week-long class i took with brian bomeisler who's the son of Betty Edwards, who's the author of a very famous book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And the whole point of that book is that the problem we have with drawing is a problem we have with with seeing and with thinking, is that, you know, if you're you're trying to draw a self-portrait, which is what everyone who takes this week-long class does as the very first thing, it like you like you said about your own 12-year-old work, you know, it, it looks really kind of crude and a little bit like a mugshot, and it looks almost like cartoonish. And after a week of this class, we all, that entire class turned in these self-portraits at the end that, to my mind, looked very impressive and, you know, not that far off from, you know, quote unquote, artistic people. And, you know, it's what happened was we had just been taught new ways to think and to see and to stop thinking of things, for example, like a face as a face or a nose as a nose, because that's where it all starts to go wrong. We have all these preconceptions of what the human face looks like in our head about the size of the forehead or the size of the eyes or the relationship between those body parts, which actually don't correspond to reality. So the minute you try to break that stuff down and focus on, I'm just going to draw this weird shape that is the inner part of your ear and not think of it as an ear, that's where the success comes in. And and that just makes me think of one other thing, which is with all these skills is that that, that breaking down and, and, and sort of not getting overwhelmed by the the whole thing, the end goal, is it, just a very important thing to both to not get discouraged as, as an easier thing to sort of conquer and achieve, but also to as a more effective learning procedure. You know, don't don't worry about, you know, making it to the end of that wave, just focus on putting your foot in the right place on that surfboard. You know, just, just uh, chunking, I think it's called, is, is just such an effective approach. Um, so, so, yeah, I would urge everyone to, as I said with singing, to not think that you're not born to draw, that you couldn't unlock this very satisfying ability and no matter what age you are. Uh, it, you know, as Brian, the teacher, said he, he had a person who was a quadriplegic in the class who, you know, basically used his mouth and a pencil and and achieved great results. So there's really hardly any you know, physical limitation here. It's, it's really all mental. So and what have been your big takeaways from this experience of learning all these new skills? Like what would be some of the practical takeaways that you can apply across whatever school it is, you think? Uh, I guess, you know, getting over that that fear thing, number one, I mean, and, and the and mental barriers, All I think all of the 
barriers largely in my entire process were mental. I had, you know, some one or two physical things with surfing, but you know, that again, that's something that a lot of people have access to. It's just, you know, getting over that sort of fear of, of looking bad and, and being willing to accept failure as part, an essential part of the learning process. And I should say, you know, not that you're always going to learn from failure, but you just have to, you just have to build in an allotment for failure. If we failed 70 times an hour, the way infants do, we, most of us would give up. We wouldn't push on, but infants push on and they become expert walkers after their 10,000 hours of practice. So, you know, as a 50 year old, that, that gets, it's hard to put yourself out there and, and look stupid. And you're sort of asking your question, why would I even do this? The world doesn't need another amateur singer. You know, my job doesn't need this, but I would just say that you can really unlock parts of yourself that you may not have had access to in other ways that, and, and sort of surprise yourself and challenge yourself in ways that might not be as possible in, in your career, say, because you've already hit so many plateaus. And yeah, I, I, could, I could go on, but um, I would just encourage every, everyone out there to take something up. I mean, this, this, this past year has been, of course, the golden age of learning new things because of uh, many of us are on lockdown. And not just because we're on lockdown, we have free time, I should notice, I should note, but that our habits were disrupted. I think this is a major part too, that you know, our normal life got disrupted and we were able to you know, so suddenly think about things in new ways. And one of these new habits would be to try to learn something new. And I, th I think a lot of people have taken that to heart. It sounds like you have. And you know, I, I say, just, just go for it. No, yeah, because of you, I'm, I'm learning piano this year. I've decided in 2021 and I have very modest goals. I don't expect to play like some fancy piece at the end of the year. I just, my goal is 15 minutes a day, practice 15 minutes a day, and I'm getting a little bit better. That, that sounds like a, a perfectly sound, uh, you know, bit of, bit of uh, advice there. And, and, it, and it reminds me of one last thing to point out here is that, you know, I would go into these things with small expectations and small goals. There's some research that shows, you know, when people say, let's say you said, I, I want to learn piano. This is going to be my, my new thing. This is going to be my passion. That, that many, when you, you try to put such a heavy weight on something, you might then think the passion, that burning passion is going to do the work for you. It's going to sort of absolve you of some of the hard work that has to happen. And number two, once it does start to get hard, as it will pretty quickly, you're, you're, it's going to backfire on you. You're, you're going to feel a bit betrayed by this supposed passion. So just kind of go in with very few expectations, like just biting off small songs here or there. A few minutes every day. Right. When the saints go marching in, I can do that. But That's excellent. <laughs> that's about it. Well, hey, Tom, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Uh, www.tomvanderbilt.com would be the best place. Well, Tom Vanderbilt, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. This has been great. Thank you. My guest today was Tom Vanderbilt. He's the author of the book, Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about Tom's work at his website, tomvanderbilt.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash lifelong learning. We find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic.
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you all on your list they went podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>